You see, you can live in a day where there's a famine for Scripture, and you can even sit in a church like this where the Word of God is taught and still not have ears to hear. That's why Jesus said, let him who has ears, let him hear. That's why the writer of the Hebrews spoke of dullness of hearing. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are working in a study of the book of Jonah, and today we continue to look at Jonah's obedience to the call of God after his time in the belly of the great fish. God has a specific will for every believer, and we ought to live in obedience to God's will. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he looks at some of the Psalms and how they relate to the specific will of God. Now, there was a popular book that evangelicals bought up in gobs. In fact, it's still in print. And it basically said, it doesn't matter. As long as you don't marry, say, an unbeliever, you can marry any believer you want. That while God has a general will for every Christian, he doesn't have a specific will for every Christian. And that is not what the scripture teaches. Gary Friesen, his book, Decision Making and the Will of God was just flat out wrong. Let me give you some promises in reference to God's specific will for your life. In Psalm 37, four, it says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, please understand the context reveals that the emphasis of this verse is not on my desires, but rather on my delight. In fact, listen to verse three right before it. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. And now listen to verse five right after it. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. So on either side of the promise in verse four is the admonition to cultivate faithfulness and to commit your way to the Lord. And when you are delighting yourself in the Lord, then the desires that originate in your heart are put there from the Lord, and he will begin to unfold his specific will for your life. He's not talking about self-centered desires. He's talking about godly desires. Listen to this verse from Psalm 139. In Psalm 139, it speaks of God's personal specific will for your life. David can write, you scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. Or listen to this promise in Psalm 31, 3. For you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. Or how about Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Many of you have it memorized. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean. It doesn't say don't use, but don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. And so when we're delighting ourselves in the Lord, God can certainly use the counsel of godly people. He can certainly use the promptings of the Spirit of God. He can certainly use different circumstances to give confirmation to his specific will and plan for your life. And by the way, there are countless New Testament examples that illustrate that very truth. Jesus reminded us that the very hairs on our head were numbered. That's how specific and up close God is. He said a sparrow can't even fall to the ground apart from his notice. And we are far more important than a sparrow. But don't expect God to direct you 
in regards to his specific will for your life if you are rebelling against his general will. And so here's God's guidance to his prophet. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Now, there's a second reason I am intrigued by this verse. Proclaim the proclamation which I am going to tell you. It's because of the preciseness. What I want you to do is to proclaim what I am going to tell you. I don't want you to proclaim anything less, anything more. I just want you to proclaim the message that I give you. And that's important because we live in a day where somehow pastors are no longer convinced that just preaching the Bible on Sunday morning is relevant to people. Well, it's certainly not relevant to the unregenerate, unregenerate, unbelieving mind. A person comes and they're arguing with a pastor in their mind who's got the Bible open. They've got issues. And they need to be born again because it's not until you're born again that you'll be able to appraise and embrace the things of the Spirit of God. But pastors are to bring not their own ideas into the pulpit. They are to bring the Word of God. And I have a lot of pastors who follow me because I hear from them all the time. And I would say to any pastor listening, preach the Word in season and out of season. That is our responsibility. A lady came to me recently and she said, I have learned more in the last three months in this church than I had in the last 10 years in the church I came from. That's because this pastor happens to believe that his opinion is irrelevant and worthless and that what I am to open and preach is the inspired, inerrant word of God. Listen to what the prophet Ezekiel was told by the Lord. Then he said to me, son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. I am sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children, and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. As for them, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, neither fear them nor fear their words, though thistles and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions, neither fear their words nor be dismayed at their presence, for they are a rebellious house. But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. God is reminding the prophet Ezekiel that whether or not they like the message that he preaches is absolutely irrelevant. The preacher's job is not to get the people to like him. The preacher's job is to teach what God has said. And God continues in verse 8. Now you, son of man, listen to what I am speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I am giving to you. And then he continues in the next chapter. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then he said to me, son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll. And go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he fed me this scroll. Remember in this day, the Bible was in scrolls. It wasn't in what we call a codex, a book that's bound. It was in scrolls. Eat this scroll. Feed me this scroll. He said to me, son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll which I am giving you. Then I ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth. 
He literally ate the scroll of God and miraculously digested it. And he found the word of God to be as sweet as honey. In similar fashion, God came to the prophet Jeremiah. Listen to these words. Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Now, God does not have to get his people, his pastors today, to eat a scroll. But they are so to ingest the word of God for it to be such a part of their heart and life that it is so internalized that they are able to feed it to the people of God so that they can preach the word in season and out of season. And let me say, if you are listening to me in another part of the country, or in a foreign country, because every week we have people who live stream that God has entrusted to us, and you have a Bible-believing pastor who's opening the word of God, then you ought to be encouraged and you ought to bless that pastor and pray for that pastor. I went to a conference with Audrey back in November and we were reminded that there are Christians all across America driving every Sunday one to two hours just to find a church that will open up the Word of God and teach God's Word. But we live in a day, the last of the last days, where people want their ears tickled. Others are starving. One brother said to me, I went to that church hoping to be fed, and all they did was try to entertain me. And people today need to hear an authoritative word from God. And it's authoritative because it's the revelation of God. And we think, well, we need all these programs, you know, a dynamic youth program and, you know, smoke and lights and a dark room, paint the whole place black. And, and uh, you know, we need all these counselors and support groups. And But when those things eclipse the clear preaching of Scripture, that's a disaster. Listen to what Proverbs says, a verse that was totally ripped out of context, made a man a multimillionaire. He took the verse out of context and basically said, what every church needs, what every individual needs, if your life is to be purpose-driven, or if your church is to be purpose-driven, is a vision statement such that everyone can basically repeat it, and that's what God's going to bless, and that's not even what the verse teaches. Where there is no vision, the people perish. And if you went back to that verse in Proverbs 29, 18, and you looked in the marginal note, literally the Hebrew text, where there is no revelation, where there is no word from heaven, where there is no word from God, the people perish. It has nothing to do with a pastor or with you being some creative planner in order for your organization to survive. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Amos said it in these terms. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. One of the main messages of the book of 1 Samuel is that it is a mark of God's grace when they have a clear, definitive word from heaven, and it is a mark of God's judgment when they do not. Oh, but someone says, you know, the, the Bible is no longer real. It's the most printed book in the world every year. We have God's word everywhere. And yet in many ministries, that book that is the revelation of God is not taught. 
And even in some places where it's taught, the people don't have ears to hear. I told you once before, I was in a church over four decades ago in Boston, and I sat under the best Bible teacher I've ever heard in my life before or since. I've never heard a better Bible teacher. And you could tell, and though I was a relatively new Christian, you could tell that there was a frustration there, that the people were not really taking seriously the effort and the time that he had put in to those messages. And then he left. And he went to a church where the people would listen. And I remember sitting in a small group, and the people said, oh, that Pastor John were here. Oh, he opened the scriptures to us and taught us the scriptures. You see, you can live in a day where there's a famine for scripture, and you can even sit in a church like this where the word of God is taught and still not have ears to hear. That's why Jesus said, let him who has ears, let him hear. That's why the writer of the Hebrews spoke of dullness of hearing. And so there are pastors who need to preach the word. Look, I hold in my hands this morning the word of God, the God who spoke a hundred billion galaxies into existence. I have the very breath of God in my hands, and when that grips the pastor, it will come out with a sense of passion and purpose and meaning, and you won't care what other people think. The fear of man is a snare. And my sympathy to those liberals who don't teach the Bible and they have to come up with something every week. I'm not that creative. They have to come up with something fantastic to say nothing beautifully. Listen, this is what I want you to do, Jonah. I want you to preach the message that I am going to give you. And that word I is emphatic in the Hebrew. It's like God underlying it. Not your message. But the message I am going to give you, why? Because the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You know, when I began my ministry in 1978, the number one issue that pastors and missionaries were facing concerned the inerrancy of the scripture. Is the Bible without error? Is it the infallible word of God? Is it inspired in spots? In which case you have to be inspired to spot the spots or is every single word inspired? And so this Chicago statement on inerrancy came out that was a magnificent statement underscoring verbal plenary inspiration. Today the battle is not over the inerrancy of scripture. It is over the sufficiency of scripture. And so the church growth movement has convinced pastors because of the numbers that it produces to be seeker sensitive, to be attractive on Sunday morning to lost people. Look, I don't want to be unattractive to lost people. But the purpose of the worship service is first and foremost to build the saints, to teach them sound doctrine. And so today, you know, people are in all kinds of theological mischief. Let me tell you what God spoke to me. And they're getting these text messages and emails from God, as it were. And then they say, God told me to tell you like they're some super spiritual person. This is the apostasy that God said would come at the end of time. 
Now, I don't know that we're going to be able to reverse it because there is so much that is falling into place in terms of God's prophetic plan, but it still doesn't change the responsibility a pastor has. The scripture is sufficient. And so Isaiah the prophet says, speaking the word of God, so will be my word which goes forth from my mouth. It not, will not return to me empty or void without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation, I am going to tell you. What I will tell you, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else, my word, period. Now think about this for just a moment. Jonah's commission like ours is to preach the word. You may not be a professional pastor like me, but you have been given the great commission. And part of the great commission is to teach all that Christ taught. You may not teach on the same level, but if you're growing and maturing, by this time, Hebrews 5 says you ought to be teachers, and it's you all. You all ought to be teachers. In other words, there should be a certain proficiency in your life if you are a growing Christian. But understand that God unfolds his plan one step at a time. I want you to go to Nineveh. He doesn't tell him what the message is yet. I want you to go to Nineveh. God takes us one step at a time. And I think what's so cool is that God tells them to preach the word that I'm going to give you. I don't want you to go there and share your testimony. See, we live in a day of sensationalism. Let's bring in so-and-so who used to be a prostitute and let her tell her testimony. Or let's get Joe in who ripped off the first national bank and he got saved in prison. Let's bring him in. And we want to do sensational things. And he doesn't even want Jonah to share his testimony. I mean, his testimony would be a bestseller in our day. My miracle ride in the belly of a fish. Or maybe how I survived three days underwater. Or maybe why I don't eat fish anymore. (laughs) But that's not what he is to preach. You deliver my message. Don't tell your fish story. Don't dramatize your call back into the ministry. You just give them the warning that I want to give you. That's the recommissioning of Jonah to preach. Second this morning, I want us to think further about the response of Jonah to preach. The response of Jonah to preach. Look, if you will, now at verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Now, what a difference from the first commission that we read in chapter 1 and verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee. That's 1-3. Now, in 3-3, we read, so Jonah arose and went. He obeys. No argument, no hesitation. He's paid the price of his disobedience. He's responded to the chastising hand of God. All he wants to do is obey. You say, wouldn't have that been easier for him to have done it the first time? Of course it would. Understand, God doesn't need us. God doesn't need anything. God doesn't lack anything. God is totally complete. And when we are disobedient, it's not God who is hurt, it's we who are hurt. God doesn't need to use me, he doesn't need to use you. 
He is totally sufficient in himself, and it is an act of grace and mercy that he would use any of us. Now, we just read, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city. And now we're told in verse 3, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Now, archaeology has shed quite a bit of light on the size of this city, and we'll talk about it more when we come to the fourth chapter. But Nineveh was great, number one, because it was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. That was the superpower of the day. And it was also great because of its size. And so it's here termed the great city. And archaeology has revealed that it was bounded by two walls. There was an inner wall that ran two and a half miles along the Tigris River. And then another eight miles around the inner perimeter of the city. And then there was the outer wall that was 75 miles in circumference. Some remains of the outer wall have been unearthed. It was 40 feet, 50 feet high, 40 feet wide, wide enough for three chariots to ride side by side. Now, I stood once on the top of the Great Wall of China, but this would really dwarf it. Now, maybe theirs is longer, but in terms of the magnificence of this wall in Assyria, and the wall was basically your F-35s, it was your nuclear arsenal, it was your protection. This was an impregnable capital. And between these two walls, you have the greater Nineveh metroplex. How do I know? Because Genesis 10, 11, and 12, put that out in the margin next to this. You might want to write that verse, Genesis 10, 11, and 12, and that Nineveh was there with three other named cities. Now look at verse 4. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, one day's walk in the ancient world was generally considered to be about 20 miles, and that you could travel about 10 miles in the morning, about 10 miles in the late afternoon, and of course, no one walked midday. Now, get the picture. He's gone a third of the way through the city, and it's then that he starts preaching. And remember, this is a wicked and violent group of people if you were here for the first message. Archaeology reveals that, but so does the prophet Nahum, who comes after Jonah, who preaches to the Ninevites. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's to the point, you know, his heartbeat had to be (laughs) beating a little faster. These are people who hated Jews. That's why he didn't want to go there. They were one of the fiercest enemies that they have. He'd just rather have these, as we'll see, approximately 600,000 people wiped off the map. But God in his grace says, yet 40 days. He's extending the hand of grace. Could God just have obliterated all 600,000? Absolutely. But he's extending grace to these people. You say, well, it seems like God is angry. Yes, he's angry. God is always angry over sin. Sin disturbs God. But God would rather forgive someone than judge people. People today don't think that pastors should preach about hell. Someone just recently accused me of being a hellfire damnation preacher. I said, I'm glad to take your uh, title. I happen to believe if we had a little more hell in the pulpit, we'd have a whole lot less hell in this nation that we're in. However, the general principle here 
is that God wants to forgive people. He's not going to compromise his holy standards, but he wants to forgive people. And sadly, we have kind of reinterpreted the way God speaks and what he has said in his holy word. You say, would God literally wipe out all 600,000? That's the message of the book. I'll wipe them off the face of the earth. Now, I know God doesn't do that very often in the realm of human history, but sometimes God does something once to send a message forever. God doesn't wipe off every Sodomite city off the face of the earth, but he did it with Sodom and Gomorrah to tell you how he feels about that sin. And now we live in a day where pastors are are reinterpreting this whole thing. They say, well, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was a lack of hospitality. Or when Paul says they did what was unnatural, now we have pulpits that are saying, well, as unnatural as if you were heterosexual and you lived out a homosexual lifestyle, or if you were homosexual and you lived out a heterosexual lifestyle, that that's what's unnatural. You say, okay, I get it, you know. uh, That can't be true. But is that not what Americans now embrace? Our own president said that this is a protected minority status. He came out last month, I was all ears. He said that sex can no longer be determined, male and femaleness, by biology. Oh, really? And so here we have the new rainbow flag of American Airlines that they put on their advertising. Notice they've added a brown and black stripe communicating that the LGBTQ plus IA plus movement is part of the civil rights movement. Listen to equate what Dr. King did in protecting people made in the image of God. That civil rights movement with moral perversion is just absolutely reprehensible. But this is what God said would happen in the last days. May I remind you of 2 Timothy 3, but realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, look at the next word, unloving. Astrogos is the word. The King James, not using a word-for-word equivalent here, but trying to capture the nuance of the Greek, does a beautiful job in rendering it without natural affection. The family is under attack like never before because a nation is only as strong as its families. And so in the face of natural love, as God describes it in his word, we've embraced unnatural behavior. You say, I get it. You know, that's all the mainline denominations, but that's not the evangelical church. Oh, really? As the world around us is fighting against the will of God, we ought to stand firm and live as a light to the nations as well as to our neighbors. To listen again to today's message in its entirety, go to searchthescriptures.org or use the Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy app available for smartphones and tablets. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling us at 877-787-7478 and requesting program JNH6. 
Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And you can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found in the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. And you can listen to her podcasts at searchthescriptures.org as well. When we return Monday, we'll finish our current message in our series from the book of Jonah. Join us then as we search the scriptures.